0: is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI, News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham, and
1: KGMI.com. Welcome to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning, live, sitting here in studio. Glad that you're with us. Let's start out with our weekly wrap for this week, and we saw that equities experienced a fairly broad retreat. The negative price action was mostly predicated on interest rates angst and some risk aversion related to Israel-Hamas war piled on by Friday. The uncertainty surrounding a potential ground invasion by Israeli forces into Gaza weighed on sentiment ahead of the weekend due to the understanding that participants could not react in real time while the markets are closed for trading. Treasuries continued to act in a volatile manner that resulted in the 10-year note crossing 5%. It's high for this week for the first time since 2007. Ultimately, the 10-year yield jumped another 29 basis points this week to 4.92%. The two-year note rose four basis points this week to 5.09%. Another sticking point for the stock market was the ongoing dysfunction of the House of Representatives. Following three failed rounds of voting this week, Representative Jim Jordan lost the status of Speaker of the House nominee, after a GOP conference vote went against him by a wide margin, according to Punchbowl News. The House will now head home for the weekend without another vote. During this week, or data this week painted a mixed picture on the economy. Retail sales were stronger than expected. Weekly initial job claims hit their lowest level since January. Meanwhile, the existing home sales report was the weakest since October of ten. And the leading indicators index was negative for the 18th consecutive month. Earnings news was also somewhat mixed. Netflix, Tesla were among the standouts, along with Dow Components Travelers, Procter & Gamble, and American Express. The mega-cap growth ETF fell 3% for the week. The market cap weighted S;P 500 fell 2.4%. The s and Equal Weight fell 2.3%. The S&P 500 closed below its 20-day moving average on Friday, or 200-day moving average, I should say. Only two of the S&P 500 sectors logged a gain for this week. Consumer staples were up 7 tenths of 1%. Energy was also up 7 tenths, while real estate was down 4.6%. Consumer discretionary down 4.4%. Those were the sectors that saw the largest declines. So looking at some of our daily action on Monday, we saw that the positive price action was driven by a sense of relief that the Israeli-Hamas war did not turn into a wider conflict over the weekend when the market was closed. The tone quickly took a shift, however. Um, Anytime a headline, um, as, as however on Monday the market's focus appeared, it could be more than did not happen as opposed to something that had already happened or something bad that had happened. The relief trade manifested itself in rising stock prices, uh, rising treasury yields, and declining oil prices. The positive bias was also helped in part by the People's Bank of China, making its largest liquidity injection since 2020 to help boost growth there. And the hope is that the third quarter earnings reporting period, which will accelerate this week, will be better than expected. The S&P 500 and the NASDAQ composite closed off their best levels of the session after the former ran into some resistance at a retest of earlier highs around 4380. And as doing so, the market traded at a tightly contested range for the bulk of the session. Gains for the major indices ranged from 0.9% to 1.6%. Many stocks participated in the upside moves amid fairly indiscriminate buying interest. Morgan Stanley was a standout loser after reporting quarterly results, which contained some relatively disappointing results for its wealth management division. On Tuesday, the stock market saw somewhat mixed action, but the Dow, NASDAQ, and the S&P 500 all managed to recover from larger losses seen earlier in the day. Like recent sessions, uncertainty related to the Israeli Hamas War and worries about the House attempting to elect a new speaker were overshadowed by other factors, namely economic data and earnings news. The relative strength in small-cap stocks and relative weakness in the large-cap stocks was a reaction to Tuesday morning's stronger-than-expected September retail sales report. Total retail sales were up 7 tenths of 1% month month over month, followed by an upwardly revised 8 tenths of 1%. for August, and retail sales excluding autos were up six tenths of one percent month over month following upwardly revised nine tenths of one percent increase in August. That report fueled increased selling in treasuries but also bolstered small cap and mid cap stocks, many of which are primarily domestic orientation due to the positive economic implications of the report. Stocks were able to rally off the session lows as the 10 year note that's the 10 year yield. Uh, pulled back from its in- interday high just before 10 a.m. Eastern Time, but things rolled over as the 10-year yield climbed again in the afternoon trading. The S&P 500 hit 4393 at its highest level, but its rebound effort stalled there, was just below its 50-day moving average of 4399 We saw the growth stock ETF decline three-tenths of 1%. The S&P equal weight uh, also, lo- however, logged a gain of a half a percent. Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Lockheed Martin, and Johnson & Johnson all reported better-than-expected earnings, but they also closed with mixed results. On Wednesday's trade, featuring a fairly broad retreat, the major indices all fell at least 1%, and the advanced decline line favored decliners a 5-to-1 lead on the New York Stock Exchange and greater than 3-to-1 lead on the NASDAQ. Again, the advanced decline Five to one on the uh, uh, decliners on New York and three to one uh, lead on the NASDAQ. Rising treasury yields were a big overhang in the market for the 10-year note hit a new cycle high. <clears throat> Rates took quickly dip, it took a dip around midday in response to a solid 13000000000 billion 20-year bond reopening. Selling picked up and the treasury settled near their interday, yield, interday high yields. The negative bias in the stock market was also a function of geopolitical uncertainty after a summit between President Biden and regional leaders in the Middle East was canceled following Tuesday's bombing of a Gaza hospital that killed hundreds of people. Uh, Many stocks participated in the sell-off. Nine of the 11 S&P 500 sectors registered to decline, with four of them falling more than 2%. The industrial sector was down 2.4, was the top laggard, Thanks in part to a sizable loss by United Airlines, which issued a fourth quarter profit warning tied to higher costs and uncertainly related to the Israeli Hamas war. J.B. Hunt Transport was another notable loser from that sector after missing on earnings estimates, saying it still sees a freight recession. Morgan Stanley was another standout loser after reporting quarterly results, which contained some relatively disappointing results for its wealth management division, The weakness weighed on the financial sector, which dropped 1.7%. Dow Components Travelers, Procter & Gamble, meanwhile received mixed reactions after reported earnings. So reviewing Wednesday's economic data, we saw that the week the MBA mortgage applications dropped 6.9%. That would be the number of applications. We also saw that the September housing starts were at 1.358 million. September's building permits were at 1.473 million. The key takeaway from this report is that the weakness was concentrated in permits for multi-unit dwellings. Single-unit starts were up 3.2 percent. Single-unit permits rose 1.8 percent, which is welcome uh, for a supply of challenging housing market looking for those single-family houses. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up here on KGMI. We'll be back in a moment.
0: Some days I cover up because of my moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Now I'm hitting the road with clearer skin thanks to Sky Rizm Kism of Rizza, a prescription-only 150 milligram injection for adults who are candidates for systemic or phototherapy. Is with Sky Rizzi, three out of four people achieved 90% clearer skin at four months. And Sky Rizzi is just four doses a year after two starter doses. Doctor, today about Sky Rizzi, the number one dermatologist prescribed biologic in psoriasis. And visit skyrizzy.com or call 1 866 Sky to learn more.
2: Don't put your golf clubs in the closet this winter. Take them to Volley Entertainment and Sports Bar in Bellingham. And this Thursday with PNW Perks, you can check out Volley for half the price. Virtually play some of the world's best golf courses with Volley's state-of-the-art golf simulator. And the whole family can have fun with their brand-new blackout mini-golf nine-hole course. Volley Entertainment Center and Sports Bar is adding more entertainment than ever. Blacklight Miniature Golf, Pickleball, Cornhole, Ping Pong, Pool, Shuffleboard, a state-of-the-art golf simulator. Plus, there are TV screens all over Volley. Enjoy the 16 taps of local craft beer and snack on their great bar food. Plus, you can book your birthday or workplace holiday party at Volley. This Thursday with PNW Perks, you can get an hour on the golf simulator for two, plus a round of blackout mini golf for two, and you'll get it all for half the price. Head to pnwperks.com this Thursday at 8 a.m. to get in on the fun. Check them out in Bellingham or online at volleybellingham.com.
3: The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife.
1: Welcome back to World Wake Up Live, Dick Donnie. Saturday morning. We're Asset Advisors. We are located out on the Pacific Highway. That's Old High 999 for those of us that have been around for a while. at parallels I 5, north of the, uh, going up all the way up from Costco, all the way up to Ferndale, in fact. And uh, we're out there in the Pacific Commerce Center on your right hand side, just right in the same complex that Wilson Furniture is in. And our address is 5060 Pacific Highway, Suite 101, Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number, 360-733-1200. And I had a call yesterday. uh, Guess somebody's been using our phone number and and, uh, making spam calls, I guess, so I'm told. So sorry about that. I don't know what we can do about it. We did call Comcast, which is our provider. But uh, uh, thanks for letting us know, and sorry for the intrusion. At any rate, give us a call if you got questions for us, 360-733-1200. Okay, continuing on with this week's stock market action. On Thursday, the market closed near its lows of the day. The price action was choppy as the market participants digested Fed Chair Powell's commentary and mo- monitored the movement in treasuries. Fed Chair Powell delivered a speech from the Economic Club of New York on Thursday, beginning at 12 o'clock Eastern Time. His prepared remarks seemingly corroborated the popular view of late that the jump in long term rates has helped to tighten financial conditions, paving the way for the Fed to proceed cautiously. In answering questions, though, Mr. Powell did indicate that the economic evidence is not indicating the Fed is too tight yet with its policy. Still later, acknowledgement did not heighten rate hike expectations. In fact, the probability of another rate hike before the end of the year fell to zero in November. from 6.6% on Wednesday and 29.8% in December, from 39.2% on Wednesday. The Fed Fund's future market is also pricing in a 51.5% probability of a rate cut in June of next year versus a 41.1% probability according to the CME FedWatch tool. Treasuries had a volatile reaction to the Fed Chair Powell's comments, which drove some turbulent action in equities also. Many stocks participated in the downside moves. The S&P 500 equal weight dropped 1.2%. The market-capped S&P fell nine-tenths. Tesla is plunging after missing earnings and revenue estimates, while Netflix sports an outsized gain after blowing past subscriber action edition estimates. Looking at Thursday's economic data, we saw that weekly initial job claims were at 198,000 and continuing claims at 1.734 million. The key takeaway from the report is that the remarkably low level of initial jobless claims, which is a leading indicator which conveys a tight labor market that is a good portent for continued strength in consumer spending. We saw October's Philadelphia Fed index drop 9 tenths of 1%. September's existing home sales were at 3.96 million. The key takeaway from this report is that existing home sales continue to be squeezed by a confluence of factor, higher mortgage rates, higher prices that are hurting affordability, limited supply, a lack of mobility due to remote work opportunities, and disinterest in moving by existing homeowners who are reluctant to give up their low-rate mortgage rate. We also saw the September leading indicators were down 7 tenths of 1%. And Friday, the stock market closed out the week with decent losses, plagued by uncertainty surrounding potential developments in the Israeli-Hamas war conflict and ongoing interest rate volatility. As a result, the trade had a risk-off vibe ahead of the weekend when participants cannot react in real time while the markets are closed for trading. The disappointing action was stemmed from an ongoing dysfunction in the House of Representatives. Weakness in the regional bank stocks followed some disappointing earnings news was another overhang for the market. The major indices settled near their worst levels of the day, which left the S&P 500 below its 200-day moving average at 4,233. Many stocks participated in the downside move that was led by mega-cap stocks. The mega-cap ETF fell one5 the market-weighted S&P down, uh, declined one3 and the S&P equal weight also dropped 1.3%. So year-to-date up through yesterday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is now down a tenth of 1%. The NASDAQ, however, continues to be up at 24.1%. The S&P 500 is is up 10, and the Russell 2000 shows a decline of 4.6% year-to-date up through yesterday. Okay, looking at some of the high-frequency data that we follow every week, as I mentioned a minute ago, initial job claims for the week ending October 13th were 198,000. That was a decline of 6.2% over a week ago. Also, if you look at 2019 levels, we were at 226,000. So that's 12.4% fewer initial claims than we had back in 2019. Continued jobless claims as of October 6th, 1734000 That was actually an increase of 1.9%. Big, big increase in box office receipts for the weekend of October 19th, almost 42.5%. Rail car traffic uh, was as was down 1.3% as of October 13th. Steel production was down about two-tenths of 1%. Hotel occupancy took a little bump upward for the weekend of the 14th of, 14th of October. At sixty-eight and a half percent, it was up one percent. We saw TSA checkpoint data as of October nineteenth, two million five hundred and five thousand four hundred eighty-seven passengers a day. <clears throat> that was a drop of eight tenths of one percent week over week. Again, looking at the two thousand nineteen level, it was at 2,431, So we're about three percent more uh, daily daily travelers going through TSA checkpoints than we had in two thousand nineteen. Supply of motor gasoline was up 4.2%, and commercial global flights as of the 19th of October, 125,494 flights a day. That compares with 118,824 back in 2019, but that was also a drop for the week of about nine-tenths of 1%. Okay, we've been kind of looking at our uh, few economic facts every week in this piece, and Today I want to take a look at the long-term historical look of U.S. government finances. And when annual deficits, now in in the trends, and interest payments on government debt at all times highs, basically something needs to change. This sparks a long-standing debate. Are the wealthy truly not contributing their fair share, as the President asserts, or is it potentially a matter of excessive government spending? Our stance leans towards the latter. For some perspective, if the government were to to seize the combined net worth of the Forbes 400 wealthiest individuals that totals $4.5 trillion in 2023, it would merely sustain the government's operations for a little over eight months. To illustrate further, suppose the Democrats successfully increase the top marginal tax rate from the current 37% to an extraordinary 100%. Well, This policy change would impact 922,362 taxpayers based on the most recent data available extending through the 2020 tax year. Such a change would generate approximately $580.7 billion in additional revenue. Assuming no behavioral changes, retirements, or career shifts among affected individuals, this extra revenue injection would only run the government for an extra 33 days. Let's talk about looking at some further insight. Let's first of all look at U.S. federal spending versus revenues. Looking back to 1950, government revenues have averaged 17.3% of gross domestic product. During this time frame, the top marginal tax rate has has given significant fluctuations, ranging from a peak of 92% to a low of 28%. Interestingly, the best year for revenue as a share of GDP was 2000, when the highest marginal tax rate was at 39.6%. Yet over this same period, government spending has averaged 20% of GDP, adding a record high of 31.1% of GDP in 2020. And in the fiscal year of 23, revenues as a percentage of GDP were estimated to be at 18.2%. That surpasses the historical average. Conversely, spending is estimated to reach 24.2 percent of GDP, easily exceeding the historical average. Let's take also take a look at the U.S. budget deficit surpluses versus unemployment. The Projected U.S. deficit for fiscal year 2023 is 6.4 percent of GDP. It's noteworthy that from 1950 through 2008, There was not a single year when the budget deficit equaled or exceeded 6.4% of GDP, not one. There is room for reasonable debate regarding the appropriate size and scale of budget deficits during the aftermath of the Great Recession and the COVID lockdowns. However, running a deficit in this magnitude and this percent present, particularly in a time of peace and historically low unemployment rates, is a cause for concern. Now, let's take a look at the U.S. federal net interest. Each year, when the U.S. incurs a deficit, it contributes to the growth of our national debt. The current outstanding federal debt has surpassed a staggering $33.6 trillion. However, what truly counts is the government's ability to meet all the interest payments on this accumulated debt. In the last 12 months leading up to August, federal net interest payments soared to an unprecedented total of $633.71 billion. This figure represents the highest level ever recorded in our nation's history. It's important to note that as long as interest rates remain elevated and the government continues to accumulate new debt while refinancing old debt at higher interest rates, this number is posed to rise even further. As a share of GDP, net interest payments are estimated to average 2.7 percent in fiscal to year 2003. This represents a significant increase compared in recent years, although it remains below levels seen in the 80s and 90s. We'll leave you to think about that one. We'll be back in a moment. Thanks for listening.
2: Now is the time to upgrade your mattress and save big during DeWard & Bodie's 77th anniversary sale. This weekend only, DeWard & Bodie will pay your sales tax on select in-stock mattresses or choose no down payment and no interest financing for up to three full years on qualifying mattresses. DeWard & Bodie stocks Whatcom County's largest inventory of mattresses. From Tempur-Pedic, Sturgeon Foster, and Sealy, with over 35 mattresses on display at their Meridian Mattress showroom, you'll find the perfect fit at the perfect price. Plus, pillows, sheets, boxes, and bases are all on sale now. Take in-stock mattresses home with you today or have their delivery professionals deliver, set up, and even haul away and recycle your old mattress. That's why Watcom, Skagit, and Island County residents shop at DeWard & Bodie. For 77 years, they've had the best prices, best selection, and best service. Shop to Ward and Bodie's 77th anniversary sale at the Bellingham Mattress Showroom on Meridian, next to Home Depot. Financing C offer qualification supply. Hello, folks. This is Phil George. I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney here in Bellingham, and I'd like to invite you to join me every Saturday and Sunday at 1 p.m. right here on KGMI for the Aging Hour. If you have questions about Medicare, Medicaid, long-term care costs, probate, wills, trusts, or anything else, That has to do with aging, this is the radio show for you. Studies show that more than 70% of estate plans fail when families need them the most. Join us every Saturday and Sunday at 1 p.m., and we can show you how to set your family up for success.
3: Hey, Whatcom County, listen up. Volunteerism is rapidly declining at food banks across the state of Washington, and that's a problem for families who depend on these community resources. That's why we're asking you to get back to action by signing up to spend an hour of your time at a local food bank today. Enough with the talk and the coulda, shoulda, wouldas. It's time to get up and prove it. Hunger relief needs all of us. Volunteer locally. Visit backtoaction.team to sign up at a local food bank near you. CBS News Special Report. Trucks carrying humanitarian aid crossing into Gaza. The BBC's Debbie Ross reports.
0: 20 truckloads of aid have crossed into the Gaza Strip through the Rafa checkpoint on the Egyptian border. They're the first humanitarian supplies allowed to enter since Israel tightened its blockade of the territory two weeks ago. But first, the trucks are being inspected.
2: The UN certainly is present there, so they may want to carry out those inspections. Uh, and then, you know, this is all going to take time because they've got to get the stuff into Palestinian um, lorries so that it can can then be distributed.
3: The BBC's Tom Bateman. The aid comes as regional leaders are attending the Cairo Peace Summit. We're now calling for, and what we have been calling for for a few days, is to lift the total siege that has been imposed on Gaza for now almost two weeks. She is with the UN Relief and Works Agency for the Palestinians. CBS News Special Report. I'm Linda Kenyon. And I'm proud to be an American.
1: Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. You know, I saw this article in the Seattle Times a week ago, and I thought about talking about it, and I didn't. And then I saw another report that came out this week that kind of condensed the same thing in a little bit shorter fashion, and I couldn't resist it. So this headline says that Washington State is planning to increase the I-405 tolls to $8,640 a year and to also charge on weekends. Now, for those that aren't familiar, maybe aren't, I-405 is that stretch of freeway that runs from I-5 down through Bellevue all the way down back coming back around the south center. And in the left-hand lane, it's been a toll lane for a number of years. And the uh, basically, the tolls go on down to Highway 167, which runs down through Renton down towards Puyallup. But anyway, the I-405 and Highway <clears throat> 167 toll lane experience is losing money. <clears throat> now, in a minute, when I tell you how much money it's losing, you'll shake your head. But the Washington State Transportation Commission is considering increasing tolls by 80% to $18 each way on I-405. The increase will cost an I-405 commuter, using the lanes at peak toll periods, around $720 a month. That's $8,640 a year. If you travel the entire 167 and 405 corridor, you can see tolls up to $54 one way. The State Department of Transportation's fiscal report for the t- tolling project shows a loss in 2022 of 1.4 not billion, not trillion, 1.4 million dollars. And they're expecting to lose money again this year. And the toll lanes, according to WASDOT's original goals, were supposed to pay for new projects in the I-405 corridor. Instead, they say they're costing taxpayers money to run. One point four million—that's peanuts in the way the state spends money. Along with this increase in tolling, the state transportation commission is considering raising the minimum toll to a dollar, to extend the tolling window from 10 a.m. in the morning and 8 p.m. in the evening. So basically, all day long, or it'll go to 10, cuts off earlier than that. Additionally, tolling weekends from 5 a.m. to 8 p.m. is under review. And since the beginning of the program, the toll lanes have been a problem for a majority of commuters. Transportation chief Lynn Peterson, who oversaw the toll project, was fired from her position by the Washington State Senate, claimed that the toll lanes aren't just for wealthy people, for a person earning the Washington State average salary of 81,000. Eight thousand six hundred and forty-one forty dollars represents over ten percent of their income. Having to spend ten percent of your money, the average earner, just to go up and down that freeway to get them back and forth to work. This is in addition to the inflated car tabs and property taxes that the regional Transport authority, transit authority area has on drivers. Payer. You may not be we're not familiar with that up here, but down in the Pierce King Snohomish County area. They also are paying additional property taxes in order to pay for the light rail projects that are coming in down there. So the toll rates are set by a combination of uh, logarithms. The Washington State refers to it as fuzzy math and reviewed by a traffic engineer looking at traffic cameras and the congestion on the corridor. That's just why the tolls can vary widely by time of day and congestion levels. For drivers unwilling or unable to pay the tolls, congestion will get worse in the general-purpose lanes. As drivers who are up to this point have been able to pay ten dollars will now be relegated to the slow lane, increasing congestion. So again, we're paying ten bucks; going to jump to eighteen bucks. Now you're going to go over those right-hand lanes; it's going to take you a lot longer, unless you want to pay that eighteen bucks each way. The Seattle Times reported that the president of the state. Good Roads and Transportation Association is concerned about increased tolls will only fuel frustration and the Washington State Transportation Chair calls the toll experience a significant failure. The Washington State Legislature and the Department of Transportation has basically failed in its mission to provide a reliable transportation system in Washington instead has focused billions on taxpayer dollars transportation options that represent less than 5% of trips taken in the state since the pandemic transit Uh, ridership has fallen, this is since COVID, I should say, transit has fallen by 30 to 40%. Not everyone can or will take transit given the increase in crime, lack of law enforcement, and the buses and trains that is not likely to change. So the Department of Transportation needs to wake up and realize that we can't toll our way out of congestion. And while tolling options give drivers that can afford it a faster commute, Washington needs to build more general purpose capacity in those 405 and I-5 corridors to support 6 million anticipated residents. That's 1.8 new residents arriving in the state in the next 25 years without the additional capacity. The problems are only going to get worse, irrespective of any toll rates that are set. So I do have one of those little pass things in my car because I don't go down there a lot, but I do go down there enough and I prepay for it using that. But um, 18 bucks each way, that's a lot of money for a lot of people. I don't know where that's going to go. And while we're talking about increases and whatever, we're seeing that the Social Security tax cost of living increase that we're going to get next year, while it's modest, could trigger higher taxes. The 3.2% Social Security cost of living uh, for next year uh, basically is well above the 2.6% average over the last 20 years. But a new retirement survey by the Citizens Senior Citizens League suggests that older adults are still broadly pessimistic about their finances. According to this survey, some 68% of older adults report that their household expenses remain at least 10% higher than a year ago, although the overall inflation rate has slowed. And Mary Johnson, who's the league's Social Security and Medicare policy analyst, highlighted in a call that th- th- there is a widespread concern about the relatively modest 24 COLA could mean for the taxes seniors pay on their federal government benefits. As, as many as 26% of survey participants who have received Social Security for more than three years reported paying taxes on a portion of their benefits for the first time, during this 23 tax season, i.e. for the year 22, that's 26% for the first time paid taxes on their Social Security. Because Social Security recipients received an even higher COLA of 8.7% last year, or for this year, we expect more beneficiaries to become liable for income tax on their Social Security benefits for the first time in the 24 season. And to be clear, Johnson said she is happy to see co- the 24 CODA, noting the cost-of-living adjustment hardwired into the Social Security benefit formula has been essential in keeping more seniors out of poverty. However, she urges Congress should be more forceful in to address what she sees as clearly unintended consequences of the tax det- rules around the program. Basically, up to 85% of Social Security benefits can be taxed when income exceeds certain thresholds. Unlike other parts of the Federal Income Tax Code, the th- income thresholds that are subject to Social Security benefits to taxation have never been adjusted for inflation. I'm going to cover this here in a second. So subsequently, as Social Security income increases over time due to COLAs, they bump more retirees over the threshold that triggers the tax on their Social Security benefits. It can also increase a portion of the benefits that are taxable. So Johnson said the survey results show that this is more than a theoretical concern, and she worries that many retirees are going to be caught off guard. According to her, most seniors already worry that their retirement income won't be enough to cover the cost of essentials, and so an additional hit to their budgets should be viewed as real concern. Well, it's a difficult policy fix. The Senior Citizens League advocates for adjusting these income thresholds to today's and continuing to do so annually inflation rates, as it's done with the rest of the tax code. It was noted that the current threshold for individuals means that those with incomes between twenty-five and 34000 may have to pay income tax on up to 50% of their benefits. If you have more than $34,000 of income, you can pay taxes on up to 85% of your benefits. Well, according to the league, again, if individuals' income thresholds were adjusted for inflation, from 1984 to today's dollars, the individual filing status instead of being $25,000 would be about $75,000. In other words, you could have up to $75,000 of income and not pay taxes on your Social Security. Currently, if you have $25,000, you pay f- up to 50% on it. The higher $34,000 threshold would be about $101,000. And then if you're looking at couples, the tax rates between 32 and 44, at which the level may I pay income tax at fifty percent, well above the forty-four thousand level. Up to eighty-five percent of the ta- benefits are taxable. So, if a joint filing status from nineteen eighty-four dollars, the thirty-two thousand dollar figure would be ninety-five thousand five hundred. The forty-four thousand threshold would be about one hundred and thirty-one thousand three hundred. So, obviously, changing the taxation of Social Security benefits is a complex task because the revenues from this tax form are an important source of funding for Social Security and Medicare trust restaurants. Revenues from the 50% level of taxation go to Social Security's trust fund, which is estimated to receive about $840 billion in revenues and taxes in this year through 2032, according to the league's analysis. Revenues from the 85% level go to Medicare trust fund. So basically, those that are taxed at 50%, that money goes into the Social Security trust fund. Those that are taxed at the 85% level, that money goes into the Medicare trust fund. And between 2023 and 2032, the Medicare trust insurance fund is going to receive about $599 billion from the taxes on those Social Security benefits. So basically, to lift the income thresholds that are subject to Social Security benefits, taxation without worsening program solvency, responsible legislation would need to replace these revenues with other sources of revenues. That is a concern. But again... People are paying more and more and more taxes on their Social Security. And because it's not inflation adjusted, it is taking a bigger and bigger bite out of more and more people's pockets. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live. We'll be back shortly.
3: Looking to improve your comfort and save money? Start with your home's largest energy consumer, your heating and cooling system. Hi, I'm Brad Barron, CEO of Barron Heating, AC Electrical and Plumbing, with a check-all-the-boxes solution, the Daikin Fit Enhanced Heat Pump. This compact, all-electric system utilizes energy-saving inverter technology to efficiently heat your home in winter and keep it cool during the summer. Delivering year-round comfort, the Daikin Fit Enhanced Heat Pump is environmentally friendly, exceptionally quiet, and maintainable. Consistent temperatures. Plus, you can save up to 30% with the 25c tax credit. Right now, Barron's Same Cash offer allows you to make a difference with no out-of-pocket expense, pay no interest, and make no payments for 12 months. Lock in 2023's prices and pay nothing until next year. Save energy, save money, pay later. Why wait? Call Barron today about the innovative Daikin Fit enhanced heat pump. Barron, your full-service HVAC electrical and plumbing contractor. Our mission, improving lives. At Puget Sound Energy, we're proudly aspiring to reduce our own emissions to net zero and to go beyond by helping others reduce carbon across Washington. Together, we're investing in local renewables, strengthening the electric grid, Helping customers switch to electric vehicles, innovating with low-carbon resources, supporting our communities, and saving energy along the way. Together, we're creating a clean energy future.
1: In the shop. It makes me sad, it makes me uncomfortable to have to say, yeah, well, it is a nice car, love the color of the paint, you know, the seats feel great.
0: (laughs) Kirk from Angler, Brian from Dr. John's, and Dan from Bellingham and Burlington Automotive.
2: ten thousand bucks worth of repairs. Join them on In the Shop,
0: 9 to 10 a.m. every Saturday on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com.
3: Because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the youth.
1: Welcome back to What Wake Up Live. I here you with you this Saturday morning. As always, if you got questions for me, give me a call, 360-733-1200. And I just want to put out a little notice. This is a ways away, but on Thursday, November 30th, from 2 to 3.30 p.m., there's going to be a presentation down at the Bellingham Public Library Lecture Room, and that's at 220 Central Avenue, downtown Bellingham. It's sponsored by the Whatcom County Farm Forestry Association, And they're going to be putting on a presentation talking about climate, carbon, and our forests. So you might want to put that on your calendar. Again, that's Thursday, November 30th from 2 to 3.30 p.m. downtown in the Bellingham Library. Just as a little note that it's coming. Well, we keep, as I mentioned earlier, talking about rate hikes, you know, the end of rate hikes. Maybe the drop in rate hikes as time goes along. We'll see what happens. So let's talk a little bit about what happens after we see that final interest rate hike. And investors may soon com- uh, confront an investing environment where the headwind of additional rate hikes by the Federal Reserve. But What does history tell us about what this has meant for stocks? The average S&P 500 total return after the final rate hike, and this is based on performance based on the last five Uh, Federal Reserve hiking cycles. The final rates being in uh, February 24th of 89, February 1st of 95, May 16th of 2000, June 29th of 2006, and 12-2018. Based on this past performance, historically equities have performed well after the Fed has finished raising its rates. When looking at those last five cycles, The S&P 500 returned 15% and 20% in the 6 and 12 months, respectively, following the final hike. Recessions have sometimes followed hiking cycles with a lag. But when there's been no recession, known as a soft landing, returns have been even better in the year following the conclusion of the Fed tightening cycle. In fact, in the last soft landing, which occurred in 1995, The S&P 500 saw a 35% return one year after the Fed ended their hiking cycle. So as the Chairman of the Federal Reserve has stated, there is a path to bringing down inflation while avoiding recession. In our view, this would be possible if the labor market loosens only modestly and strong consumer spending continues to hold up as inflation drifts lower. If history is any guide, this scenario could be beneficial for equity investors after that final rate hike. So we keep talking about how close we are to it. It's kind of something to look forward to, hopefully. And that's, again, is a history of the last five rate hikes when they've done their last hike. So something to keep in mind. Also saw out a report this week that said that major companies are ditching their college degree as as a job requirement that many businesses are moving away from requiring college degrees for increased number of positions, and said they're focusing on applications, skills, experience, passions, and even their cultural fit. Fox News reported that companies such as IBM, the Bank of America, Accenture, Walmart, and Google are reducing the number of corporate jobs that require four year college degrees. In September, for example, Walmart announced it was rewriting its hundreds of job subscriptions to allow for relevant experience to take the place of a college degree. In 2021, IBM announced it was removing the college degree requirement for almost half of its U.S. openings. A recent report in the Philadelphia-based Burning Glass Institute predicts that the shift away from college degree requirements could open up 1.4 million jobs in the next five years for folks without such a degree. Given the higher cost of college and the assembly line issuing of degrees in mediocre online university programs, the shift away from degree requirements is a win for job seekers and employers alike. be interesting to follow what that trend does, but I certainly agree because I think there's a lot of money being spent, a lot of debt being read up, and I don't know what the returns are on some of that. Okay, <clears throat> also saw a report come out this week that says that uh, Health insurance premiums are going to now cost about $24,000 a year, according to a new survey. They said that health insurance premiums jumped this year in a post-pandemic spike in cost of care, adding to burden of employers and workers as inflation erodes a broader buying power. The average employer-sponsored health insurance premium for U.S. families rose 7% to almost $24,000 this year, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation survey of more than 2,000 U.S. companies, compared with a 1% increase last year, premiums for individual employer coverage rose by the same rate. Premiums for the estimated 153 million in the U.S. who get coverage through their employers go up each year, but the acceleration in 2023 is particularly threatening to employers and the rising prices for other goods and services. The cost of premiums is typically shared between employers and workers, with companies paying 71% on average for the family coverage in the, in the Kaiser uh, study. The 7% increase was the biggest the survey has reported since 2011. High inflation throughout 2023 drove this year's hike. Employers and workers are both feel the pressure of higher costs. Premium contributions have increased about 20% over the past five years for both groups. So we're seeing employers pay more. We're seeing employees pay more. Well, you've been watching all those ads on TV about medic advantage plans and all the health care supplement plans and whatever. Well, also we're seeing an increase in the number of enrollment scams. So basically I want to spend a second here talking about how to avoid Medicare open enrollment scams. You know, throughout the um, Medicare open enrollment period, or what we call OEP, you need to watch out for these scammers. And after the, they're after your personal information, they're after financial details. So October is time for cooler days. We're seeing that outside today with that fog hanging around out here. Also for warmer drinks, and that's also the start of the Medicare Open Enrollment Period, or OEP. If you have Medicare, October 15th through December 7th, is when you can make changes to your Medicare health and Part D prescription drug plans and now you're probably seeing ads from plans by mail, email, phone and in and television. You might be hearing from scammers too, but how will you know? Well Medicare scammers often look official. They pretend to be from a connected to the government backed system or a known business. Their goal is to steal your information. So let's talk for a second here about what you need to do to avoid scammers. Number one, never give your personal information to anyone who contacts you out of the blue, even if the request seems to come from Medicare. They might ask you for things like Medicare, Social Security, or financial account numbers. Medicare does not call people unexpectedly, though, to ask for these details. They also won't call you to sell insurance or health care products. Not sure if the call is legitimate, hang up and call Medicare at 1-800-MEDICARE. Don't respond to anyone who seems to be from Medicare and ask for your personal information. You might reach out by phone, mail, email, social media, or text. They might include the Medicare name. They might look or seem professional as they actually have ties to the government. But as soon as they ask for your Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, or financial account numbers, you should know that it's a scam. The real Medicare doesn't ask for that kind of information. Also, don't click on links. Open any attachments or call any numbers if you get these messages. They're probably phishing for your personal or financial information. Throw away the mail, delete the messages, and get off of the phone. And I get all these IRA questions now and then. I had one come in basically about inherited IRAs in 2022. Basically, upon the passing of his father, uh, he had already started. Ta- the father had already started taking his required minimum distributions. He says I took a 23 RMD from in May of this year. He said says now that he found out that IRS ruling said he's not required to do so. So he called the custodian to reverse it, but they said they can't. So basically, an answer to that is the recently released 2354, the IRS has once again excused RMDs from inherited IRAs within the 10-year period of time. That means if you inherited an IRA within that 10-year window, you did not have to take an RMD this year. Same thing for last year. But if you took the money out, you can't put it back. Now, if you did take money out and you're working, you could possibly fund your own IRA with that money. So that is something for you to think about. But if you've got questions about it, you can always give me a call, 360-733-1200. want to thank you for listening today. Don't forget our show tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. hope you have a great day. hope the fog blows away, and uh, we'll be back next Saturday live here on KGMI. Thanks for listening.
0: voiced on this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision.